welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Would you open a Bible or an app to Acts chapter 2? We're going to read a very famous passage at the end of chapter 2, and then look at what we can learn from that and some other passages. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Sounds pretty cool, huh? Actually sounds fairly utopian, almost perfect. Sounds exactly like us, CPC. In this series in Acts, I've mentioned revivals several times that have taken place in American history in the past just a little less than 300 years. During the most recent one called the Jesus Movement, which started in the 1960s and during which I became a follower of Jesus, this passage that we just read was often read to me by by leaders and then they would talk about what the church was supposed to be like. That we should get back to this picture of the church here at the end of Acts 2. But this passage is an incomplete picture. People who taught me on this passage, they did not include during the Jesus movement Acts 5 and Acts 6 and Acts 7 and 1 Corinthians and 1 John as they describe what the church is supposed to be like. It is true that the early church experienced this signs and wonders in this wonderful community, but it's an incomplete passage, a picture. But as we look at what the Holy Spirit might be doing here in the future, remember what Charles Finney said, put it on screen. Charles Finney was part of that second great revival in American history. Uh, that bridged over the 17 to 1800s. A revival can be expected when Christians have a spirit of prayer for revival. All over the world, the Holy Spirit has worked powerfully through signs and wonders, dreams and visions, nudging people along, supernaturally wooing and winning their hearts, always developing a deep sorrow for their sin, coming to repentance, belief in Jesus, and turning their lives over to Him. And I'm asking you, develop the habit of praying regularly, daily, not only for the PNC as we were talking about, but also that the Holy Spirit would pour himself out on this church, on this peninsula, on our country, and we would have the privilege of participating in the next great revival in this land. But what should you expect if the Holy Spirit decides to do that, to to win over the lives of many people? Will everyone arrive for worship on time? Will everyone agree about how to do church? Will everyone persevere? Will no one abandon Jesus or have an affair or bad mouth or refuse to be generous or be discipled or serve or be in a small group? No, there'll be all different things going on. Always when revival comes, it's messy. So today I want to walk you through some of the messiness and, and first just look a little at the, the beauty of the early church so that we won't have unreasonable expectations because unreasonable expectations can lead to disappointment that may result in you 
abandoning Christ's church or even abandoning Jesus. And we have millions of people in this country that because of unreasonable expectations, they used to go to church. Now, before we talk about the messiness, think of the beauty. Now, remember from last week, we talked about Pentecost in which thousands and thousands of people come to Jerusalem and many of them are making a pilgrimage from all different parts of the Roman Empire. And so they're from different countries. They have different cultures, different ways of doing religion. Although they're Jewish, they, they do some of the things differently. They, they, they dress differently. They probably smell differently. They certainly talk differently, different languages. They're different and they come on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people, some of them Hebrew Jews, some of them what we call Hellenistic or Greek Jews, turn themselves over, their lives over to Jesus. And they have this glorious conversion experience. And undoubtedly, with this transfer of life, maybe they've been planning to go right back home after Pentecost. They stick around. They become part of the early church, and they're all together, as we just read, meeting and worshiping and, and sharing and being generous and eating in each other's homes and being taught. It's a mixture of people who are different from various countries in loving, gracious, generous community. Now remember, by nature, human beings don't tend to be nice to people who are different. It's one of the uglier characteristics of the human being is that when um, someone talks differently or looks differently or is a different socioeconomic strata, we, we tend to look down on them. So the early church is a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God where people from all tribes and nations will forever appreciate and love each other. Powerful miracles are happening. The church is growing. That's the beauty, okay? Now turn to chapter 5 on your app or in your book. And just to put it in context, at the end of chapter 4, people were actually selling houses and laying the proceeds at the feet of the apostles so that no one would go hungry. Barnabas, who later becomes the mentor and traveling companion of the apostle Paul, he's one of these people, very generous, who, who sells something, gives all the proceeds to the apostles. And can you imagine what would happen in this church, on this peninsula, in the world, to what we can do for the poor, for expanding the kingdom, for expanding the kingdom worldwide? You're, you're not going to like this when I say this. If some of you who have multiple properties would sell one and lay the proceeds at the feet of the elders for them to listen to God's voice and advance God's kingdom, wouldn't that be fantastic? That'd be biblical. But in chapter 5, a man named Ananias, wanting to be part of the group, maybe wanting to be you know, praised, maybe wanting to stick out, maybe wanting to have influence, he and his wife decide to lie to the apostles they sell a piece of property and they pretend that they're giving all of the proceeds to the church. Look what happens in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. A few hours later, his wife Sapphira comes in. She also lies and falls dead as well. Now, note a couple of things. First of all, um, God knows. And sometimes your deepest, darkest secret, God will reveal to people and they'll, they'll call you on it. 
I doubt if God will strike you late for being, strike you dead for being late to church. But there are sins that are so serious and so damaging to the church that God has actually struck people dead, probably to protect the church from their influence. In this case, the sin was not that they weren't being generous. The sin was that they were lying to God and to people publicly. But then look at verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And there they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. No one dared join them, but many joined. Probably what Luke is saying, Luke the author, is that a lot of people had heard about Ananias and Sapphira, and that was kind of scary. So unless they were really seriously interested in Jesus, they probably just kind of kept their distance. Verse 15. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. What does power and authority look like? What does supernatural power look like? What does the real church look like? What does revival look like? Well, all over the world in the last number of decades, it's often looked like this, not always. Revivals in America have sometimes looked like this. Sometimes they've been a little tamer, fewer really dramatic, obvious uh, miracles, but sometimes like this. But always people, people deeply sorrowful over their sins, repenting, turning their lives over to Jesus, coming to true belief. Now, the Holy Spirit decides what it looks like. The Holy Spirit generally does not start a revival, however, until the people of God, the people who love Jesus and are his followers, they're fervently praying regularly for that revival. So that's what I'm asking you mostly, this sermon and the last two. Develop that habit. Pray, call out to God that, we might, that the people you love might join God's family. But what do we see here? It's not just the end of chapter 2 that paints the picture of the church. From the very beginning, there were people we see in Acts 5 who lied, who misrepresented, who were faking it, okay? It's always been there. Turn to Acts chapter 6, the next page. And in, uh, we'll, we'll look at verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Hellenist is just means Greek or of Greek influence. So these are Jewish people from the Greco-Roman world. Again, they, they talk different. They may dress different. They probably smell different. Um, and they're being treated prejudicially. They're not being taken care of. They're widows. They came here on a pilgrimage probably, and they're just obviously different. And again, this is an ugly, unloving, ten- unloving tendency among us. Um, just to look at outsiders or people that are different and be mean to them. The apostles established the, the, the church office of deacon. We have wonderful deacons in this church. Their job is to go and help people in need. They have, they have a blast doing it if you ever get asked to be, to be a deacon, and they do a great job. The, but the apostles take care of it so that no prejudice occurs in the church for people in need because of nationality, culture, language, etc. The apostle James will later write to the churches instructing them not to be prejudiced against someone because they're poor. Another tendency, ugly tendency of humans. Now, this is both disappointing and beautiful at the same time. It's disappointing because people for whom Jesus died, who love him and are now giving him something, they're being 
treated prejudicially just because they're not as wealthy or they talk funny or they smell funny. But it's beautiful because the church is so countercultural in this. Today, you know, we know it's wrong to do that. They didn't even know that back then. They thought it was the thing to do, treat people who were of a lower class as worse than you because you were better. The world has changed. No, it's not perfect. There's still a lot to be done. But because of the influence of Jesus, the world is a much gentler and nicer place even for the people who don't realize that's where it came from. Gradually revolutionized the world. Paul would write, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. No prejudices. Revolutionary. Goes back to Jesus. So we see that the early church, for all of its beauty and power, included in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, lying, faking it. In Acts 6, prejudice against people who were just just different. In Acts 7, we're not going to look at it, but... um, Whereas earlier we read that the church was held in high esteem by outsiders, now the religious um, establishment gets really ticked and they start persecuting the Christians. A great persecution occurs and many of the Christians in Jerusalem, they have to disperse. They become refugees and they go, but God uses it to spread the gospel and his kingdom even to places where there are Gentiles now. Very messy. Very difficult, shattered lives. It's hard to be a refugee. But even that, God uses it. Now just to paint the final couple of things in our picture of the early church, uh, the Apostle Paul started a number of churches in major cities. He started one in Corinth, um, but they got crosswise with each other. Ever heard of that happening in a church? Let me read it to you in 1 Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? It's apparent later on we get the second book of Corinthians. They will go on to break Paul's heart. He was their founder. New leaders will come in, they kind of push people around and they'll badmouth Paul. And you see, from the beginning, people in churches have been divisive. Sometimes it's over essential truths of the gospel, and that's, yeah, sometimes it's important. But most of the time, from what I've seen and read, it has been about preferences that are not essential or because some pastor or church leader has behaved poorly or sinfully and people have become disillusioned and left. There are millions of people in this country who used to go to church. Now, I'm not saying that it's never God's will to leave a church or to go and form a new church. I'm just saying that all too often, divisions and bad-mouthing are inappropriate. But again, remember, the church is resilient. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter Wagner, who was a professor at Fuller Seminary years ago, called, had a principle called church growth by division. And he would talk about a church, they'd get crosswise each other, they'd split, they'd go and find, have, now they'd have two churches, and in a few years you'd find there were a lot more people combining the people involved in the two different churches than there were when it was one church, because probably they were just trying to outdo each other. So they were the, the right church, and the other church was, those people were doing it wrong. And again, it was often over preferences, not over essentials. Should pastors or leaders sin? Of course not. 
But is it the end of the world when churches split? No, God, God's powerful and he's determined. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Even persecution and church splits, he is so powerful he can turn the, he can turn the bad around to expand his kingdom. And now, let me be crystal clear. None of what I am saying should be taken as an excuse for sin or for insisting on one's preferences in the church. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? You may not think that their sin was so serious, but God did, and they died. So take your own sins seriously. Repent. Cooperate with the changes the Holy Spirit wants to make in your life. Be transparent and responsive, especially to the encouragement of your small group when they, ooh, when they encourage you to change. And just so you'll know, um, we're starting up some of uh, small groups based on Greg Ogden's very popular discipleship material. There's other ways to get in small groups. Just fill out one of the green connect cards, say you want to be in a small group, give us your information. Somebody will contact you and it will probably change your life and then you will feel experience perfect community? No, but really wonderful community. So many of you are doing that. Last thing about the uh, early church. The Apostle John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Now, from the beginning, there have been people who succumbed to temptation or they got disillusioned with the church and they left. So, just summarizing of the ancient church, you know, just like today, the Holy Spirit still works with miracles and dreams and visions and transforms lives and convicts people of sin and brings them into the kingdom, woos and wins their hearts. And just like in the early church that had all of these beautiful things as well, we see people lying, faking it. We see bad-mouthing and divisions. We see prejudice just because someone's different. We see people who get upset because they don't want to do church my way. We see people who used to go to church but left. So what lessons can we take away from this? What does the real church look like? Will the real church please stand up? Andy Stanley, famous preacher in this country, says, the word church should never have appeared in our Bibles. It shouldn't have become part of Christian culture either. It's more than a mistranslation. It represents a misdirection. The reason is that the word church comes from the word kirk in German, which refers to a temple or a church building and it's used over 100 times in the New Testament. The one time that it's not is in Acts 19 where it talks about a city that's in turmoil and it really is the assembly. And that's what, that's what the, the church is not the building. We can get rid of the building and still have church. They do that in many places in the world when they're, they're persecuted. The church is you. It's the assembly. It's the people. You are the ones with the spiritual gifts. So church doesn't have anything to do with the building. It's nice to have a building. It facilitates discipleship and being a church but what we expect from the church is not about buildings about what are the characteristics of the assembly of you of the people involved that's what we're talking about when we say what should church look like jesus said outsiders would know we are his followers by the way we love each other and i want to now go back to because you're i know you're waiting for it um how does this tie in with waiting on a woman um, or waiting on a man, or waiting on the one person in the family who's always late. By the way, that was my sister Kathy. And five of us would be waiting in the car to go to church, and 15 minutes later, my dad honking the horn, out would come Kathy and get in, and off we'd go. And guess how we were all feeling? Grumpy and late. 
nobody's ever had that experience, whether over being late or anything else as they come to church, right? Um, years ago, and, and those of you who are younger, probably unless you've seen it on YouTube or something, there was a movie, uh, there was a TV show very popular called To Tell the Truth. Anybody remember that, To Tell the Truth? And they would put three people up on the stage and they would all claim to be the same person, Sally Smith. And then they'd, two of them, one of them would tell the truth to the panelists who would ask questions, and then two of them just lie blatantly and try and convince the panelists, I'm Sally Smith, I really am. This is what it means to be Sally Smith, and I do this and I do that. I'm Sally Smith. And then at the end, they'd vote for who it was, and they'd say, will the real Sally Smith please stand up? And they'd kind of fake you out, and eventually she'd stand up and go, oh, that's so surprising, everybody was such a good liar. Will the real church of Jesus Christ please stand up? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a very famous book called Life Together. Let me read to you a passage from that. Innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and and to try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. In, in your relationships with your best friends, or if you're married, your spouse, uh, maybe, maybe siblings, It's helpful to look at everyone as a picnic basket. Let me explain. When you go on a picnic and someone else is is preparing the picnic, the meal, you may get tuna sandwiches and a Coke. They prepared the meal. You don't know what you're going to get. Or or it might be fried chicken and apples and cookies. or, Or it might be peanut butter and jelly and chips and bananas and water. If you focus on what is not in the picnic basket, oh, I really wanted a hamburger, you will not be grateful. But if instead you will focus on appreciating what is in the picnic basket, the positive characteristics, and overlook many of the things that are not your preferences, or maybe not just preferences, maybe they're even smaller sins, you will be grateful. You will have a better life. You won't be sitting on the park bench grumbling about someone who's late. Make a list of the things someone important to your life brings to the table, the positive things. Make a list of 10 things. Read it every night before you go to bed for a month. And every time, and, and put away the things that irritate you. Pray that God would just give you the grace to oh, just cover in, in love and forgiveness, even if it's a small sin, um, something that irritates you, like being late. Use the picnic basket approach. They may not have hamburgers in the basket. But they have tuna fish sandwiches. Learn to like tuna. They may not be on time, but they may be hardworking and helpful. Here it comes. Do the same thing with each other. This is not your building. This is your assembly. This is your people. This is your fellowship. These are the people. You didn't choose who your siblings would be, and you didn't choose probably who would be in this church, but God has given them to you so that you can become more like Jesus, so that you can experience grace, so that, not so that it can become some perfect fellowship, so that with all of its imperfections, grace can be seen. Love can be seen. 
when you find yourself being irritated, remind yourself that we all tend to think the sins of other people, that other people struggle with that we don't struggle with, those are worse than ours. My besetting sin, perfectly natural, God understands. But your besetting sin is really disgusting and awful. Develop the habit of saying the following when you are irritated. Yes, they do that, and they shouldn't. But I do, and then you fill in the blanks. And God has been so gracious and forgiving and patient with me. Luke talked last week, great sermon on being unoffendable. Develop that. Let go of the little stuff. So much of it is little stuff. Yeah, there are times when you've got to talk to somebody about a sin or in your small group encourage them, but let go of the little stuff and enjoy each other. Now, all of this being said, I, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. You are an amazing group of followers of Jesus. You're, you're an amazing church. You're much better than you realize you are. I've visited many of your small groups and just seen the love and the grace you extend to each other and the, the community. I've heard your stories. I've, I've, I've seen life change in so many of you. Now hear this. You are to be commended. I personally have never had the privilege of being in a church as loving, committed, as, as being as much transformation as you. So remember all that God has already done in you, through you. And then extend lots of grace and love to each other so that when outsiders look at us, I say, see how they love each other? Would you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you that you give us each other and that your Holy Spirit is constantly working in the midst of us. We pray that you would build in each of us um, an accurate, reasonable expectation of what we should be as your people, not some utopian view. A view of... Transformation taking place, but still so much grace as you love us and we love each other, flaws and all. We thank you for all that you're doing in our midst, for the many wonderful things going on, and pray that you would bring revival, prepare us, that we might be the kind of place where people would know that we love each other because of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.